All right, welcome back everyone to episode four of the Servants Church podcast. It's Big Questions with John and Ben from Servants Church. Um, this week, John, we've titled the episode Creationism, Conspiracy Theories, and the Authority of Jesus. Now, we got a question in directly from someone. It was anonymous, so we can't point the finger. But um, I, I'm going to read that out for you and uh, see, see what you think. So uh, here it comes. Doesn't young earth creationism, by rejecting mainstream science, turn Christianity into a sort of conspiracy theory? Therefore, isn't the best way to interpret scripture to do so in harmony with mainstream science rather than against it? Surely it is better to use natural and special revelation as tools to work together for truth rather than to hold on to one of potentially many legitimate interpretations of Genesis, which seem to pit one against the other. Uh, well, John, there was a lot there. It sounds like a multi-layered question. Um, I should just say as well that for those of you watching on YouTube, these quotes will appear on your screen. And if you're listening in to us as a podcast, uh, you can always email us. The PDF and the PowerPoint we've used is available and the link will be in the description as well. But John, this question seems to be based on many assumptions, I think, and they've used some terms as well I don't really quite understand. So what's the best place to start with this science creation stuff? Well, I probably need to start with just defining some terms. Um, what they mean by young earth creationism uh, is, is really, uh, young earth creationism is a view of Genesis 1 and 2, specifically, uh, as well as the way that, uh, to, to kind of view the, the genealogies of Genesis, uh, as describing literal historical events and people. Uh, and because they see this as literal seven or six days or seven days, these are literal people, they, they often believe that uh, the creation of the earth happened less than 10,000 years ago. Mm, right. So that, that is a, a bit of a minority view. It happens to be the view that I lean towards. Um, and, I, and I probably need to say, just to, to be clear, I, I'm not in any way a scientist. So this is a view based more on the text of Scripture. Um, but there, we have some great science minds in our church, specifically a young lad by the name of Joseph Hubbard, uh, is a part of a ministry called Creation Research UK, and you can find uh, more information about uh, this issue on www.creationresearchuk.com. So I'd, I'd go on that and check out and ask Joseph some more specific things. Yeah, they do great work, and they're they, very good scientists too. I've, I've spoken to him a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I think that's one of the things that's so impressive is that these are people that, that take the Bible seriously, take the Bible at face value, but they take science seriously. They really do seek to do good science in their research. Yeah. Now, I think what the author says uh, here, the author, whoever gave this question, uh, what they say is that they're right when they say there's uh, that, that a young earth creation is only one uh, potentially many uh, legitimate interpretations of Genesis. They're right about that. Yeah. I think they're inaccurate when they say that uh, young earth creationists would reject mainstream science. Mm. I think that's probably overly simplistic. I think it's probably more accurate to say that a mainstream science would reject creationism. And probably most of the time... Um, not just young earth creationism, but any creationism. In fact, um, uh, kind of the, the way evolution is defined in academic circles today is, is around this idea that everything came to be without any kind of outside power or force. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of does away with creationism. So it's, it's, it's not so much that we are hostile 
towards uh, uh, the scientific community. And, and even there's many scientists, of course, that would believe in creationism. But <clears throat> it's the idea that uh, mainstream science thinks it's nuts to believe in a young earth. And so I think that's probably where he's, this person or she is coming from. Sure. Or, or they just pay no mind to the potential for yes. a creator God. I mean, going through my undergraduate science degree, there wasn't really any notion of, of anything other than, you know, uh, randomly creation coming into being definitely no God, but it doesn't even seem to be an argument. It's just a non-space. The, the pre-assumption that before yes. even beginning any science is, yes. it is what it is. Let's observe, you know, no Absolutely. God. And I think it, I'm glad you said assumption. In fact, it's probably good for us to say at this point that <clears throat> it's important to recognize that um, everyone who does science starts with assumptions. In fact, everybody does philosophy before they do, they do science, no matter who they are. And so really, it's just with, with creationism, it's a different set of assumptions. So. Mm, sure. Okay, so uh, just speaking about our understanding of Genesis then, one and two, you've said you take a more literal view, uh, reminiscent of our previous podcast episodes, literal interpretations of Revelation, sounding good. Um, if people want to hear John's teaching more specifically on different views, different interpretations of Genesis, you can access those resources, those teachings, our other available uh, podcasts on the SoundCloud or on Spotify. Just scroll very far back. It was several years ago that John did that, but they are there. You can access them. Um, so, J John, I don't quite understand, though, the difference between natural and special revelation. Yeah, those are, those are important terms to kind of think about. Um, well, you can look up later on, uh, uh, listeners can look up later on Psalm chapter 19. In Psalm chapter 19, um, the psalmist talks about really two, these two types of revelation. Natural revelation, it's a good way to define it would be this, that God's, it's God's revelation of himself in the created order to humanity in general. So in other words, the creation itself, all that we see, says something about God. And Psalm 19 or the first six verses talk about that. Special revelation, which is more in the second part of Psalm 19, is would be maybe defined as God's revelation of himself to a specific person or community through his law and his prophets. Now also we see in the New Testament that ultimately uh, that God's special revelation of himself comes through his son. And all that special revelation is meant to be for the benefit of all humanity. This is why God does it. So it's, it's given specifically to a person or a community, but it's meant for everyone. Right, sure. And I, I think that comes across pretty clearly in, in Hebrews uh, 1. I'm going to go ahead and read those verses. Yeah, I've, I've got them here. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So, John, that seems to make it pretty clear that our best way of our special revelation is through Jesus to God. Yeah. But I, I want us to help understand a bit more about this relationship between uh, revelation and, and mainstream science. Is it that science is always trying to to prove the, the existence of God and, and our revelation and understanding of him? Yeah, no, and I think to be fair, most uh, research scientists, uh, they're not trying to prove or disprove uh, the, the existence of God or the work of God in creation. That's not their agenda. They have a very narrow agenda to do something that's meant to benefit us. But I think mm -hmm. where this comes from, this idea of this conflict or even the, the inner... inner um, uh, the overlap between what, what the Bible would or what we would see theologically as natural revelation and scientific research is this. The, it's the assumption that when a person is doing scientific research, uh, that the researcher, in a sense, is interpreting 
the natural revelation of God. Uh, there was a famous uh, 16th century mathematician named Johannes Kepler who said that when, when he was doing his research, he was thinking God's thoughts after him. Mm-hmm. And that definitely can be the case. It can be the case that, that scientific research is a way to discover truth that God's revealed through um, his created order. Yeah. Uh, but it's not always the case. And that's, that's part of the problem with that assumption is that I think it's fair to say that scientific research is almost always beneficial. Mm. Um, myself, as well as every uh, creationist that I know, is very pro-science, pro-research. We think it's a great thing. It's almost always a good thing. Um, but it doesn't always lead to natural revelation. It doesn't always lead to people seeing God uh, as he's wanted the creation to reveal him to be. Right, sure. That that reminds me of the whole thrust of Paul's argument in Romans 1 about yes. how people can take what we observe, the natural revelation, completely twist it, completely miss God and the special revelation. Um, should I read? Yeah, read that, please. I've got ver- okay, I've got Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, uh, which says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles." Yeah, so it, it's, that's a kind of a good place to go where Paul's talking about they as in humanity in general. Uh, we, we would probably say, that we as humanity in general tend to see creation and instead of going, oh, what a, uh, what a great creator, we go, oh, what a great creation. Mm-hmm. And it's really equivalent to seeing a, a beautiful work of art, a, a painting or a sculpture, and being so enamored with the beauty and then not caring if there was actually uh, an artist behind it. Right. And so uh, really that's kind of what happens, that, that we, we kind of get it wrong. We, we get that wrong. In fact, um, this doesn't mean that, to be clear too, this doesn't mean that when a scientist is doing, a researcher is doing scientific research, that his research isn't um, beneficial, isn't helpful. Uh, and it does, also doesn't mean that God doesn't reveal himself through his creation, because obviously he does. But it does show us, I think, that natural revelation is very limited uh, and in fact, it's not enough to bring us to the truth that Jesus talked about. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, that's actually what you were talking about in the last episode, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to read uh, John chapter 8, a couple of verses from there about the truth and how we can know it. Yeah. Um, you'll see it on the screen. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, it says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Yeah, that's very strong, isn't it? Jesus is saying we can know the truth. Absolutely, absolutely. And so it's as opposed to sort of uh, like the old TV show, The X Files. The truth is out there. Uh, Jesus says the truth is right here. It's me pointing to Himself. It's what I say and who I am. And so, according to Jesus, the truth is accessible. It's definable and it's liberating. But that truth can't be found apart from him, from Jesus. And so natural revelation can't bring us to that truth. It can bring us to a truth that there's a God. It can help us to recognize if there's a creation, there should be a creator. Uh, but it can't bring us to that thing. We, we really need uh, the special revelation. Now, that doesn't mean there's conflict. There's no conflict between 
God's natural revelation and God's special revelation, which is why I kind of uh, I take a little bit of issue with, with the question because we're not, as creationists, uh, kind of pitting natural revelation against special revelation. They do work together. Mm. Uh, the conflict comes, though. More when we get the interpretation wrong. A- absolutely. Yeah. When we interpret either natural revelation or special revelation wrong. And we can get both wrong pretty easy. Mm. And I think science and scientists would love to say that um, the basis of our observations and our studies is is objective and um, just kind of neutral down the line, down the middle. But as, as we've read in Romans, it, some, there's, there's pretty much always a bent that people are starting from, an assumption of well, philosophy, as you said. So. Absolutely. I heard, I heard, uh, I heard, uh, um, or I read once from a a uh, uh, pretty well-known evangelical uh, scientist uh, from the 20th century, a guy named uh, E.E. Walder Smith. He said, uh, there's no special species of human called homo scientificus. So in other words, uh, scientists uh, are just as susceptible uh, to uh, having preconceived ideas. In fact, they have to have some preconceived ideas to that. They're no more objective than anybody else. Now, trying to be objective, trying to sort of let the evidence lead you where, where it can. That's that's good and that's right, both in interpreting natural revelation and special revelation. But you do have to start with certain assumptions. Yeah, sure. All right, so just to protect us and guide us on, on that then, what is good Christian science, John? What What's the guidelines to help us interpret uh, natural and special revelation correctly? Yeah, well, from my opinion and from, from my study of church history, from my study of theology and even how theology is developed, Really, the church has always uh, believed in at least these five non-negotiables, what I think are five non-negotiables. This is my understanding. The first one would be about what we call God's transcendence. Um, and that means that, by that we mean that God is eternal spirit, that he's wholly independent of the material universe, that he's beyond uh, uh, all known physical laws. In other words, he's not limited by physical laws. And therefore, he cannot be observed apart from his own revelation. So God does design the universe in such a way uh, uh, to, to kind of show something about himself. But God was before the universe. In fact, this is how the Bible begins, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. Yeah. That's how it starts. And so the, the transcendence of God is something that we have to believe as Christians. And I, and I think, uh, really, if we think about it, from a materialistic uh, worldview, which would be uh, <clears throat> an idea that there isn't any God, all there is is the material universe. Yeah then you're really just believing in the beginning dirt. That dirt's always been existed. It's, always, it's, it's eternal. You have no answer for anything beyond that. Um, there are, are loads of other cultures that have different ideas about creation, uh, whether they're violent forces in the universe clashing and coming together, or you know, that, uh, you know, uh, just a, a myriad of different mythologies around that. Yeah. But the, the Bible doesn't start with creation. It doesn't start, or doesn't start with um, the created order. It starts with the creator. That he's transcendent. So I think that's the first thing. Yeah. So it's it's the fact that our creator is bigger than creation. And Absolutely. so at, at most, what we're going to be able to learn about him from creation is a tiny piece, just a, mm. a small amount about him because he's bigger than it all. Yeah. He's, he's, he's bigger and he's beyond it. So we don't see God in creation. We see something about God from creation. That's a big difference. Right. Um, also, I think a second thing would be the fact that we see uh, in Genesis 131 that God joyfully and intentionally created all things to be very good. Do, yeah. do you have that, that verse, Ben? Why don't sure. you read that if you have it? Yeah, that's really cool. I like that one. Genesis one thirty one says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
And that's actually a little different to the previous parts of creation yes. where before humans, things were good and then it became very good. Absolutely. And in fact, it's kind of the, the collective, the, the overarching, God's kind of sitting back going, yep, all this is very good. Each part was good, but all this is very good. It's interesting too, because if you read Proverbs chapter eight, uh, it's kind of like, in a sense, there's uh, there's this image that, that Solomon's giving about wisdom personified creating the universe. And it, 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 it speaks of things like God taking his delight in the sons of men and that God was joyfully doing this. God wasn't just reluctantly, God wasn't bored one day, but God joyfully creates um, all of the universe. That's so wonderful. And, it is. and not random, but it was a pleasing thing for God. To Absolutely. There's a, there's an, that's one of the things we have to understand is an intentionality to, to God's creation. Sure. So I, if, if it was so good then, John, why do we see so much evil and suffering today? And where do all the problems come from? What's we're gonna, bad? Yes, we're going to come into that in a second. But before we, that's, that's actually point four, the fourth non-negotiable. But the third one I think we have to do first is the fact that the Bible really declares, and this is something I think we have to believe, is that humanity starts with a little special, a literal and special creation of Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. That they weren't just, you know, uh, hominoids that, the, you know, um, uh, that evolved and or those first kind of hunter-gatherers or whatever that God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take you and make a people out of you and somehow breathe my spirit in. But the Bible doesn't give any room for that, really. It says really clearly that Adam and Eve were a special creation. And that's important for, for several reasons. Uh, one is if you look in Luke chapter 3, you can look this up later, and you see the genealogy of Jesus. Luke traces that genealogy all the way back to Adam. He doesn't, he doesn't tra uh, trace it back. So if Adam isn't a literal person who was literally created, then that kind of calls in the question the, the inheritance rights of, of Jesus to the whole earth uh, as that perfect, uh, or that last Adam, as, as he's called. Mm -hmm. In fact, in Romans 5, where he's called, referred to as, uh, as uh, or compared to Adam, uh, Jesus in Romans 5 is seen as, it says things like the, the one man brought in death, that's, that's Adam. Mm -hmm. And another man basically uh, uh, dies for all humanity. That's Jesus. Yeah. And so this comparison between the two, it's really important theologically. Mm -hmm. So if we don't believe in a, a literal Adam and Eve, it really kind of undermines what the uh, New Testament writers saw about Adam and Eve and how that connected to the theology or how they saw Jesus as this perfect man. Right. So I think, I think no matter what you believe about the age of the universe or about the processes that God used to create, you have to believe that. In fact, interesting, one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, who's not a young earth creationist, he's probably more like a progressive creationist or possibly even, uh, yeah, he's probably a progressive creationist. But uh, he, he says he doesn't believe in a literal six days, but he does believe in a talking snake, which brings <laughs> us to this fourth bit, okay? So the fourth thing I think we need to believe in is that creation has been negatively affected by Adam's sin. Uh, what we mean by Adam's sin is if, if you remember the story from Genesis 3, and I'll have you read a couple of verses in a second, but in Genesis 3, of course, God has placed Adam and Eve in this perfect garden. Uh, they had responsibilities. They had choices to make that would help them grow. And one of the main choices was do not, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of this tree in the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing different about that tree except for God purposely seemed to set it aside mm -hmm. to give them an opportunity to say, I'm going to obey. I'm going to uh, uh, say, say no to something that looks good. But they get deceived and they end up partaking of that. And there's consequences, specifically Adam's consequences, that affect all of creation that we see. So right. 
Genesis three seventeen and 19. Why don't you read those verses? Yeah, sure. So they say that to Adam, he said, that's God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Then cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Kind of morbid, John. It is, it's a bit morbid, and it's, it's, it's heavy. But I think one of the things it indicates was it wasn't just the fact that Adam now would experience death and all humanity after him, but that there's some uh, consequence to Adam's sin that affects all of creation. And if you think about it, if we're talking about, we're talking about these non-negotiables that help us to get both special revelation right and, um, <coughs> excuse me, and natural revelation right, if you're observing the created order, you, we are observing now a fallen created order. Now there's debate among theologians about what that would look like. And it's difficult at times to discern, is this how something was originally meant to be? Or how something isn't originally meant to be? And again, I'm not a scientist, so I really struggle to discern that. But there is, that is, I think, a non-negotiable. You have to understand that if we're going to observe the natural order correctly. Yeah, Adam's sin as the explanation for all the horrible things we see in nature today, in people, in the animals, everything wrong going yeah, on. That's the reason. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, obviously God says everything's very good as you were bringing up uh, earlier. Yeah. It's kind of say it's very good that uh, uh, all Christians is very good that, you know, animals kill each other or that there's all these diseases that we that actually don't help us. Mm -hmm. and, and so that doesn't seem to jive. We would question the judgment of a God that said that was very good, sure, yeah. uh, which, is, uh, which we, you know, wouldn't make any sense if there's a God, whatever he says goes. But, but that's not what he, we don't believe that's what he's saying is very good. So we have to account for that yeah. in how we do both special revelation and uh, natural revelation. Right. Uh, I think the last bit, to the last of the five non-negotiables for us, uh, is specifically about Jesus Christ himself. Because mm. the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is both the ultimate revelation of who the Creator is, which you just read in Hebrews uh, yeah. 1, 1 and 2, yeah. But he's also the Creator himself. Wow, yeah. This is exactly how John, the beloved disciple, starts his gospel, the first three verses of John. If you have that, why don't you read that? I'm going to read that, sure. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And we're certain that's talking about Jesus, aren't we? Because later Paul, uh, John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's, that's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is God, and through him all things were made. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, there's a lot, there's so much depth to those verses. But just for our, our, our sakes, our, our, uh, what we're doing here today, it's important just to recognize that that's what we see, that Jesus is both the, the, uh, the revelation of the Creator and the Creator himself, uh, or, or God the Son is. And so I think it's important for us to see that. Now, uh, if, if people have a different view, a lot, the peop, lots of people have different views about Genesis. Yeah. And so I think you can have these five non-negotiables. Hold on to those mm -hmm. and look at Genesis in a, in, a, in a variety of different ways. I do believe that's the case. Yeah. Where I'm coming from with this is that I think that, in my opinion, you, if you have a view that denies one or more of these five assumptions, you, you're, you're not getting either natural revelation right nor special revelation right. Sure. 
And so this is this is what's really important. Yep. All right. So are you, are you saying then when we've all got it right and perfect and we understand everything, that natural and special revelation are a perfect sandwich and always go together rightly? No, I'm not saying that. And I, and I want to be clear, too, that uh, natural revelation still fits, it fulfills its purpose that God intended for it, even if, if that's all that somebody has. In other words, uh, from what you read earlier in, in, in Romans chapter 1, yeah, exactly. Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 is that humanity is without excuse before God. Uh, even if all they have is natural revelation, um, because God reveals that he's real and that he's good um, by the fact that he's created. Um, but it does mean uh, to me that natural revelation and special revelation don't have this 50-50 relationship. So this is where I'd kind of push back on the question or the assumption that the person who sent us had, you know, this idea that surely it's better for natural and special revelation as tools uh, to work together for truth. Um, yes, but they, you have to have those in right measures. It's kind of like saying, well, certainly to make a nice uh, cake, you want sugar and flour. Yes, but it's not going to be a nice cake if you don't get the proportions right. And so I think there's the proportions are, are what they're intended, their intended uses have to be understood. And so this is kind of where I think that people need to know. I, in fact, when it comes to natural revelation, according to what Paul says there in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, Natural revelation, that the creation itself exposes how blind and how thankless we are towards our creator. I mean, think about it. The, the reality of there being a creator, a good God who's given us every good and every perfect gift, which is what James says. And we rarely give him thanks. We, we, we want to ignore that he exists sometimes. Or we want to make him into something that he's not. We counterfeit him or we ignore him. This is what natural revelation proves to us. We should see creation and go, there's got to be a creator and he's got to be good. Instead, we see creation and we think, why isn't it better? Or why can't I live in a different part of it or something like that? And we're not thankful for what God has given us. And so I think that's a, that's a, a really concerning thing. But what's great about special revelation is special revelation does also expose us. It does. It exposes that um, we fall short of God's glory. Um, but more than that, it reveals to us how merciful and how gracious our Creator is. Yeah. So that we don't just look at creation and go, it's good, but it's broken, and we don't know why. Um, and we don't just look at ourselves and say, I think I have value, but I feel broken, and I don't know why. We look at special revelation and we go, oh, I see. It's because of Adam that I'm broken. I inherited that brokenness. Mm. Oh, I, yes, I do have value. And so I think it's really important that we recognize where... Yeah. how important special revelation is. Oh, absolutely. So just like how you were touching on how the five non-negotiables can really be important and have an impact on our life and how we interpret our, our value in these things, I'd like to ask then on, on behalf of people still wrestling through this stuff, still understanding the balance between science and creationism, uh, maybe even people who wouldn't call themselves Christians right now, what's the important thing that really needs to be, uh, you know, bear in mind when we approach these five non-negotiables? Do we have to believe in a literal Adam and Eve? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I want to come to that in a second because I want to, I want to share how... Uh, these are things, these five non-negotiables uh, are actually things that everyone should want to believe. And I'll talk about that in, a, in, in just a second. But I, I think it's important too that we bring up the reality that um, as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, as those who believe in, in creation, even at myself as a, a young earth creationist, um, I don't deny uh, the reality of natural selection. That is the idea that there is changes and variances within species 
the, the, the strong of those species survive, the weak die out. So when there's mutation in a species, if that mutation benefits the species, the other parts of that species tend to die out and that dominant aspect of the species goes on. That's an observable fact. Sure, so I believe I, that's called microevolution. Yeah, it's called microevolution. No one's denying microevolution. It's when you take microevolution and apply it to origins or apply it to how we've gotten here that one, I think I personally see, don't see a lot of evidence for that, mm -hmm. at least in my understanding. And two, it doesn't really fit with what we see in scripture. So I want to be clear about that. Again, we're not against scientific research. We're not rejecting scientific research. Uh, you know, we're, we're really saying that, no, we just want to see science done well. We want to see natural revelation uh, be utilized, uh, but also in the... Um, uh, with the benefit of special revelation. Sure. But I do think these five non-negotiables are things that uh, even someone who, who's not sure what they believe about creation should want to believe. And, and, and this is why. The first one, of course, was about God's transcendence. Yeah. And, and, and the reality is, if we really believe that there's a God, if, when you believe there's a God who's not um, connected to or dependent upon or under the created order, that means that God... Uh, is not limited by any earthly problem. Great, yeah. And so, so we don't, we're not looking for a power that might be just a bit stronger than us. That, but in God, we have the all-powerful one, the one who can resolve any problem that's on this earth. And, and as we'll see in a minute, will resolve. I think the second thing was, of course, that God had joyfully and intentionally created all things very good. Yeah, that speaks to most of our desire to find some sense in life, some yes, purpose, meaning, absolutely. right? And I think we have a desire for that because we've been created with that. We've been created with a desire for meaning and purpose because God created us on purpose. Yeah. He wanted us to exist. He, he wants us to know him, which is really our main purpose. <clears throat> and that also kind of connects to this idea of God specially creating Adam and Eve or humanity being a special and crowning achievement of his creation. It, it's, it's because God creates Adam and Eve in, uh, in his image that we are as humans unique image bearers different than the rest of creation. Mm -hmm. That's God declaring that and making that that gives us value. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about human rights or human the value of humanity, that's not something that we project on ourselves that we think it just seems right or something. Right. It's something that God declares mm. so that we can stand on some absolute truth that humans have value, mm. which is why we don't go, well, you know, COVID-19, that's a big deal. It doesn't really matter that a lot of people in, in, in you know, retirement homes are passing on. No, it does matter because those people are image bearers and we care for them yeah. and we need to be do, do, have due diligence to take care of them. Yeah, and we can say where our value and rights come from. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so we're not just kind of, this is not something that's just kind of evolved, it's something that God's given us. Yeah. Um, even the issue of, of the fact that the creation's been naively effective by Adam's sin, I think we kind of referenced this earlier. Sure. That's, that's actually a good thing that we know that because... If, if we see that God's created all things good and suffering and death enter in because of Adam's sin and we're experiencing the repercussions of that, both from what he's done, but also from the sins that we do. I mean, most people I think would agree that a lot of the problems that we do uh, have in, in environmental problems are man-made. So I'm not talking about just climate change. I'm talking about in general. We, we don't steward this creation very well. That's part of our sinfulness. Well, the good news is, is that that was not part of God's original creation and it's not part of God's uh, permanent plan. Right. 
So that, that from a, an evolutionary standpoint, a materialistic standpoint, suffering is just part of it. It just is what happens. It's part of survival of the fittest. It's part of uh, of, of national na- natural selection, but from a from God's perspective, from from the fact that there's a Creator who's who's made made Adam and Eve with the ability to choose to obey or not obey, that's where suffering came in, and God is going to deal with suffering. One day, suffering is going to be done. Mm-hmm. It's really cool if you read the scripture in the beginning. It starts in the garden. You read the scripture at the end. It ends in the garden. A restoration of all things. Yeah. And, and that brings to the last thing about Jesus Christ, of course. Yeah. Because th- this means there's a Savior. That, that we, it's, God has not left us to blindly suffer. You know, it, take, taking special revelation at, at, at face value, seeing what, what the scripture says about Jesus Christ. Um, God has not left us to blindly suffer. But instead, he's entered into suffering. Yeah. Into human suffering through Jesus. He's overcome human suffering through his death and resurrection. And with that death and resurrection, he guarantees that what we see at the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, is going to come to pass. That there's going to be the world that we all want. Mm-hmm. So, so even if you're struggling to, to reconcile sort of what you understand about evolution, what you understand about science, with what God says, you should want to believe these things. Yeah. You should want to believe these things. Definitely. And wonderful to tied off with with Jesus it, it seems to me that the perfect way to bring together all the revelation available what God wants us to know and what we can interpret from creation is in the historical person of Jesus who, who was God and, and died for us so yeah thanks thanks John for that uh, a look into science and creation um, next time we're waiting for your questions guys so there's a link in the description do send us more of your questions And check out all the other teaching available on our YouTube channel. You can search for Servants Church Norwich. And don't forget, as always, on Sunday there will be our weekly live stream. Tune into that. So we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening.